90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how you doing? Uh, great, John. How's it going with you this week? Oh, pretty good. It's insanely busy and sounds like you are as well. Uh, I am insanely busy, but I'm going to do something about that right now. <laughs> I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> this is a late night, don't panic geocast. The way our schedules worked this week, we are actually recording late at night, so we are joined by two special guests. Shannon, who is your guest? Oh, well, my guest is Happy Camper IPA by the Santa Fe Brewing Company. <laughs> <laughs> and who do you I have am... with you? I am joined by King Richard's Red, which is from a local brewery here in State College. Oh, wonderful. Well, I will say that my uh, Santa Fe pale ale that I have here is, um, it came from New Mexico, obviously, which is where I also went this week. So what were you doing out in New Mexico? Well, I was on a scouting trip because I'm about to take my intro to field methods class out on spring break for a week-long mapping field trip. And so they're going to learn how to become geologists next week. <laughs> oh, boy. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's a lot of logistics to get together. <laughs> oh, you better believe it. I have 36 students, three TAs, myself, and we're going camping for a week, and shockingly enough, a lot of geology students have never been camping before, so there's all the logistics associated with that, plus trying to find a good place where I can let 37 students go <laughs> and uh, walk all over everything. <laughs> and hit lots of things with hammers. Uh, yeah, lots of things with hammers, because as we've talked about before, that's the real mark of an amateur is how many things you bang on your hammer with. <laughs> so um, that'll be happening. But what's great about going out west and what I always like to talk about in my classes is like geologists, the west is a sacred place for geologists. And it's because there's no grass covering up the rocks out west. <laughs> yes, here in the east, uh, we're pretty lucky if we can get a few strike and dips and kind of guess <laughs> at what's under our feet by yeah. the dirt. <laughs> right, exactly. That's why there's no uh, there's no substitute for the high desert. There's, you know, a couple scrub brushes. They're usually held on tenuously by some tiny little roots. You can just kick them out of the way, and you got all the strike and dips you want to take are right there. Well, and it's also the home to everybody's favorite field accompanist, Choya. <laughs> It is. Um, even when my son was three years old, he knew the difference between prickly pear and choya because choya are the bane of every, every geologist's existence. And if you don't know, they're those really tall barrel-like sort of cacti that have all kinds of branches. Um, I'm pretty sure they're sentient, so they walk around to get right behind <laughs> you and jump out at you. Um, I only took a couple of choya this weekend, so it was a good weekend. Yeah, and when you get the uh, choya needles in you... They are kind of hook-like on the end, and there have been several cases where we've had to get needle-nose pliers to get them out of oh. students. Oh, yeah. They're... Everything in the desert is trying to kill you. <laughs> like, that's, mm -hmm. how, that's how I like to tell my students. You know, there's all kinds of snakes, and then every plant is trying to kill you. Yucca, they're the worst. They're pointy everywhere, right? I mean, <laughs> right. at least a cactus, like, you can see the needles. But yucca, you touch them, they go through your genes, like nothing... Nothing can save you. But it's sort of a rite of passage for geologists to right. go out. Right, and then everybody destroys a pair of field boots on dolomites. 
<laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, my husband found that out the hard way, why they call it tear pants texture this weekend, because he sat down and he's like, this is a weird rock. And he got up and sure enough, the Dolomite had ripped a hole in his pants. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, yeah, the West is a rough place, but it's a really great place to do geologic mapping. It is. And I know that's where a lot of people go for field camp. And that's kind of what you're preparing the students for, right? Uh, right, exactly. Um, the field camp at my university is in Canyon City, Colorado, which is also sort of the high desert. And they have many of these same things that they'll be dealing with in New Mexico next week. They'll be dealing with for six weeks out in Colorado, except it will be much warmer. <laughs> right. And so you're going to be teaching them field mapping, which is uh, what we thought we'd talk about today. Right. Um, it's sort of the basis of being a geologist. And I mean, it's not just geologists, but all geoscientists use geologic maps of some sort, right? Because geologic maps convey all sorts of information. So if you're an earth scientist, you've probably looked at some kind of map that conveys either information about um, rocks at the surface or bedrocks or soils or minerals or something on the surface of the earth. And a geologist had to be the one that went out and made this map. Right. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's an interesting process to do it. And there's a lot of estimation that's involved. In fact, you know, I often (laughs) have kidded you in the past about uh, drawing geophantasmograms. But you have to make some guesses as to what's going on. But we're getting pretty good at figuring out what's going on down there. Uh, we really are, and I hate to say it, but geophysicists help that a lot. There's a lot of, uh, <laughs> as you know very well, there's a lot of near-service geophysics that can take some of the guesswork out of geologic mapping because you think this sounds like something easy. You just walk outside, you've got a map, you draw what rocks you're standing on. But try to think about all the things. If you walked outside, especially out east, where's the closest rock to you, <laughs> you know? Oh, right, and sometimes just identifying that rock because it's in a sequence of very <laughs> similar rocks that can be pretty tricky. It's because you're a geophysicist, John. That's why you have trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. And it's true, like out um, in the field area we're going to, you know, there are a lot of red rocks and there are a whole lot of tan rocks. And then there are some slightly less red rocks and they all look very similar. So you really have to get your face write down on them to tell them apart. But that's where um, that's where some of the interpolation comes in too, right? Because we're going to be mapping on BLM land, so Bureau of Land Management land. We're allowed to basically go where we want, but, you know, we're close to some reservations and uh, some state land where you have to have permits that we're trying to avoid. So we're going to be a lot doing a lot of guessing, basically, when we get to those areas of the map. And it's something like the more you see as a geologist, the better you get at those guesses. Right. So I guess we should kind of go over with those that aren't super familiar with geologic maps, kind of what they can expect to see when they look at a geologic map. Right. Um, So as we were just talking about, there are all sorts of different geologic maps out there. And um, what all geologic maps start with, especially for field geologists, is basically a geomorphological map. So that's geologist fancy talk for... (laughs) topography, right? Geomorphology is just what the surface of the earth looks like. And so most people are probably familiar with topo maps, I would think. Yes, or for geophysicists, uh, roughness. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, surface roughness. Um, (laughs) So is that high coefficients equal interesting topography or low coefficients? I always forget. (laughs) Uh, Very rough. 
higher okay. coefficients. Okay, great. So high coefficients <laughs> make really interesting topo maps. And so that's what my class is going to do. I'm going to give them a topographic map of the area. We've been working for the last several weeks learning how to read topo maps, uh, you know, what simple topography looks like. And then they're literally going to be let loose and they're going to have to fill in the blanks. So they're going to have to see what rocks are what, the orientation of the rocks, mark that on their map. They have to figure out where they are using uh, things like triangulation, finding their bearings to different nearby mountains. The good thing about uh, New Mexico is there are a lot of really high peaks that are very obvious on maps. And then they're going to look at what geologic unit they're in, mark the orientation, and move on. We have quite a bit of area to cover, and so they have quite a bit of hiking to do. <laughs> Right, and you just covered a lot of steps that take a semester <laughs> to teach. <laughs> right, that's exactly right. So um, I know it might be overwhelming for people who don't exactly know what a geologic map is or even how we get there, but that's kind of what we're going to talk about today is just the whole basis of what a geologic map can teach you, how does one get made, and you know what, what is the history of it? Because the history is actually pretty interesting. But one of the reasons why you might want to know is because there are lots of geologic maps. Um, the United States Geological Survey is a place that most people are familiar with, and it's a government agency that's tasked with basically creating topographic and geologic maps over every part of the United States. Right. And so that's where we kind of start from a lot of times, is you look and see what has been mapped in the area that you're going to. Uh, because a lot of times, like with your class, I'm sure you're going to do some really fine-scale mapping that maybe wasn't captured in the, the quadrangle maps. Uh, right. Um, the place that we're going to is called the San Ysidro Anticline. And an anticline is simply sort of a domal feature where there are really old beds in the middle and younger beds uh, on the outsides of the anticline. Um, and that's just sort of the structure that an anticline is. And it's a pretty well-studied area. I'm hoping to check out everything in the library that has any answers on it so my class can't get to it before we go. <laughs> but <laughs> That's probably a really good plan. <laughs> yeah, it probably is. I know there are some giveaways on the Internet, but hopefully they won't be listening and uh, look those up. <laughs> but... Right. So you're going to take all these students and throw them in vans. Yep. Or ask them to get in. Nicely. No, I'm going to throw them. That's, okay. that's absolutely right. And <laughs> so I'm going to throw them all their stuff in a van. And all their stuff is the field gear that we've talked about before, right? So this is back in episode one early on. That's right. Yes. Um, so we've got a good setup. If you want to know what you should take with you when you go out into the field, you can listen to episode one where we in detail talk about things you should have in the field. So I've been hammering this into my students. Hopefully they will have all of those things. <laughs> And their nice, shiny, brand new blank topo map. So there is a sort of argument here about how you can start this off. And it really begins with, do you let your students use GPS or not? Right. And I have sitting here in front of me, in fact, uh, holding up to our <laughs> Skype window right now, the GPS that I used when I did field mapping. And I, I really liked the, uh, the Garmin 62S. It has an nice huge antennas you can get reception everywhere and all kinds of topo downloads and waypoint markers and uh you know i can i can nerd out about this but you should probably stop me uh. <laughs> um well i think in the interest of full disclosure um so i have a gps unit too 
<laughs> it's <laughs> uh, John's laughing because we've had some fun with my GPS unit. It's so ancient <laughs> that um, I had to buy this ridiculously old cable for it. I actually had to call Garmin to ask how to even download my data. And the girl on the phone laughed at me because my GPS was so old. Because I'm sort of, as we know, I'm sort of a traditionalist. And I'm not letting my students use GPS. At least not yet. Right. And actually, when I started field mapping, we weren't allowed to either until one part of the project we were able to because it was a tiny feature that we were trying to map and trying to do it by hand. You know, the width of your pencil mark was uh, a, a problem. God. <laughs> yes, you can wipe out a lot of geologic history if you use greater than 0.5 lead. Yes. <laughs> right. Um, right. And so since this is their first, because of the weather, as we've talked about, has thwarted all of our mapping projects so far, this is really their first one. And so... While I can't tell them not to use their phones, which, as we know, they all have GPS, um, what I can do is take them to a place so remote that there is no cell phone service. Right. <laughs> and it turns out that this place has no cell phone service, so I'm not even going to worry about that. <laughs> there you go. Unless they download the maps beforehand, uh, probably not going to work out too well for them. Uh, right, exactly. And um, I actually know in the in episode nine, we're going to talk about some apps that can do that for you. Because while now we're talking about just plain good old pen and paper mapping, because that's where I feel like you should start. There are also a lot of really excellent technology tools to help you in the field. But right. But you have to use them in conjunction. I'll even say this, because there have been times where I've been in the field that the weather goes south or it's hot and your technology refuses to work or it's <laughs> cold and your batteries die prematurely and you're stuck with a paper map. <laughs> That's exactly right. And while in this class it's not necessarily a huge deal, um, I have a pretty good vantage point out at this feature where I can see most people, but sometimes that could put people into a life or death situation. As we both know, the weather in the field, especially out west, can change really quick. And you can be really hot one minute, and then you can be hypothermic 30 minutes later. Right. And you have all kinds of you know, flood conditions, fire conditions, lightning danger conditions that you have to consider. So for you as an instructor, I'm sure that's going to be a continual concern. Oh, yes. It's very terrifying to me. But I think that something that puts my mind at ease is the fact that I'm really trying to hammer home simple basic techniques of how to read a topographic map so these kids can know without even thinking hey this is a ridge I need to avoid that this is where I should go to get out of the weather or anything like that but it's also where you should start when you're going to make a geologic map so you've got a map and it's on whatever form of map board that you desire <laughs> as we previously discussed <laughs> But if you just walk outside with a map, you're probably not going to be that successful. Uh, that is true. And this is something I've been struggling with developing is how much research do you do? So now when I go out in the field, and I know you've known this because you've helped me with a lot of my research, I do a lot of research before I even go. I want to know everything about the area that I can. But for my class, I don't want them to know too much because I don't want them to go into this exercise with like preconceived notions about the structure, about the units, anything like that. So I'm actually sort of going back and forth with how much stuff I should give them before we get out there. Because they're going to have this blank map and that's fine and dandy, but 
What do they need to know about the rocks before we get out there? So not even what do they need to know about the rocks, but are you letting them look at aerial photos? Aha, that leads into the next class period. So (laughs) this structure is, um, it's very linear. It's a very good structure for someone first time mapping to go see. Um, I mean, there are geologic points of interest on the trail, and these are just for, you know, hikers or mountain bikers. It's that impressive. Um, So you could actually probably map the whole thing on an aerial photo, and we're going to be doing a comparison exercise, which I'm sure we're going to be talking about in the future, comparing their boots-on-the-ground geologic map with an aerial photo geologic map of the area that I'm going to force them to make using the iPad and... um, Google Earth. So they're going to do that after you get back? Correct. Correct. I don't want them to know. Hopefully they're not listening. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, after we get back, we're going to start comparing and bringing in some of these. After we've done all this analog, if you will, um, geologic mapping, we're going to start to bring in some of the tech. And Google Earth is an amazing, amazing tool for geologists. Um, and we're going to see, like, how good could you have done not boots on the ground, but just looking at this air photo versus the week that we spent out there mapping this project. Hmm. So that's a little bit different than when I took uh, intro to field mapping. We actually looked at an aerial photo of our area. In fact, they were stereo photos. So two photos at slightly different angles and then used, you know, the the view master type thing <laughs> that you would hold up to your eyes. And we made a rough map from that. But there are a lot of things that you couldn't really quite get from the aerial photo and that's where we went boots on the ground to investigate you know there was no need to go investigate uh dipping strata right right and and i do agree with that um it's sort of an experiment i'm trying because um as i teach more and more science what i find is that i'm trying to not it's really hard to break down people's preconceived notions And I feel like if you do too much research on an area before you go out there, and this is, this is not saying research you're doing for your master's degree or something like that, but research just for an exercise like this, I don't want them thinking, I already know the answer. So therefore I don't need to look. It's, It's kind of a planned, a planned sort of lack of information so that they don't have preconceived notions, say from aerial photos or from reading big long reports about the area i want them to go in bright-eyed bushy-tailed and see what happens now this is the first time i've done this area so this may be an awful awful (laughs) disaster i'm setting myself up for but (laughs) it's my it's my plan for now (laughs) so uh have you bought a drone to try to take some of your own aerial photos (laughs) uh no i don't know what the rules are for flying over public lands um are they still setting that up or if those are in place, I'd like to know because I'd there love is, to have a drone next year. Yeah, there was a few little guidelines that came out, but I, I haven't read them well enough to know. Yeah, me neither. Um, I think that'd be a great, uh, a great project to start writing up a proposal for, though, because this area is probably, I don't know, it's a couple square miles. Um, but the deal is the terrain there is pretty up and down, as you can tell in the topo maps, because you have lots of... Um, really tightly spaced contours, which mean really steep terrain. And it'd be really nice to be able to fly a drone up and down that because you could do some really good checking of your guesses because you can't reach all the data or all the strata here. You're going to have to actually like make some interpolations about the orientations. And if you had a drone, 
that you could stick right up on it. That'd be really good to sort of check what you're guessing. Yeah, no, that'd be great. And hopefully you get to do that next year. And uh, if you do get a drone and need somebody to go into the field. <laughs> do you know anyone? Is that, you have somebody in mind? I might know somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I could find somebody that's interested in both geology and technology. Hmm. I don't know either. I don't know. Well, I'll keep looking for that. But uh, <laughs> um, it'd be really great. And it'd be interesting to do this exercise this year and then go back with like a drone and see what how we could make the make these maps better because I mean no most of my students aren't going to be field geologists right I mean I got lucky enough to get my dream job as a field geologist and so you have to kind of tell them why is this important for you to do because you're never going to do this in your job but as we alluded to already Every geologist or every earth scientist is a consumer of these geologic maps. And so knowing how they're made makes you more aware of all the information that you can actually get from one. So that's sort of the point of this whole exercise anyway. Well, right. And it takes a lot of practice to be able to look at a two-dimensional map and in your head go to the three-dimensional structure that's beneath it, that's shown by the map symbols and strike and dips and all these things that you see on the map. Uh, it takes you a while to get used to doing that. Uh, exactly. And that's something that every earth scientist needs to be able to do is translate stuff from 2D into 3D. I mean, I think you and I both really started doing that in meteorology right away because we both looked at a lot of radar data, which is kind of like a live geologic map, right? It's this 2D projection of the 3D atmosphere. You know, I've never thought about it that way, but that's actually a really good analogy. Oh. And uh, <laughs> different elevations of radar data would be like looking at different depths effectively, you know, taking different cuts through the topo topographic surface. Yeah, it's it's exactly the same thing. Um, I, when I worked at the Severe Storms Laboratory as an undergrad, we would take cross-sections of storms all the time, and we would use those cross-sections to actually figure out... Uh, all kinds of different aspects about the storm, you know, volumetrically. So like the vertically integrated liquid values and things like that, like how big is your hail core. And it was the same thing that I did a year later in geology class. And I feel like it made me that much better of a geologist because I'd already been identifying these storms in 3D. And so it was a, just as easy to take structures and do the exact same thing with them. Right. And that's a difficult skill. But so we've talked about kind of geologic maps and what you're going to do with your students when you go into the field, but you had brought up a book that I'd only heard about but never read that was really interesting. Uh, right. Um, so my mommy and daddy got me this book for Christmas <laughs> a long time ago when it came out. It came out in 2001, I think, and it's called The Map That Changed the World, and it's by Simon Winchester. And if we have any... Um, nerds in the audience, which I bet we do. Um, <laughs> Simon Winchester has written a lot of really nerdy science books that are just an absolute pleasure to read, and they're chocked full of information. But this one is about the map that changed the world, and it's about the man who wrote and worked on and mapped the very first geologic map. So this would be back in, what, late 1700s, somewhere in there? Uh, right. And, and it was, of course, in England. And I say, of course, because England is really sort of the birthplace of modern geology. We'll be talking about it in many shows because all sorts of history of geology always comes back 
to England. But this is also where the first map was made. And it was made by a man named William Smith. And he was a surveyor. And back during the late 1700s, early 1800s, they were building a lot of canals in England. And he was a surveyor working for the canal builders. But not only was he doing that, he was also starting to get sort of really into the holes that they were digging. And he was paying attention to all the sorts of layers of rock they were digging through. And it got William Smith to thinking a lot about geology of the area. So he was kind of the uh, canal side geologist. <laughs> right. right, as opposed to a well site geologist today. Right. <laughs> uh, that's exactly right. And um, I like to imagine this era because so many things in like the foundations of modern geology were being discussed in England at this time. Um, the Geological Society of London was this very prestigious group of, I mean, it was rich, rich white old guys, basically, <laughs> who got right. together and talked about uh, the science of the time. And geology was one of the big things that they were talking about. Um, now, William Smith wasn't exactly part of that group. He was not a noble-born although he was very intelligent. And so he was really well-respected because he was a really smart guy. He took to surveying extremely quickly. He got a lot of really great jobs because he was so good at math and at observation that he was able to kind of make a name for himself that way as opposed to just being nobly born. Right. And since he was you know, really good at observation, that's kind of what led him to noticing that there were these continuous layers of rock stacked on top of each other, right? And that he could kind of match those up. Right. And more importantly, um, what we non-paleontologists like to call bug pickers <laughs> is that <laughs> William Smith was a bug picker, like many people at that time. And he started to collect fossils that were inside these different rock layers. And so in the process of collecting these fossils, he started to notice that there were certain fossils that were only contained in certain strata. So this shell that had maybe eight ridges on it, for example, was only found in this tan-colored limestone. And so he started looking at all the canals in the area and saying, hey, this exact same bug, as we call them, <laughs> is in every tan-layered limestone. So maybe this tan-layered limestone that's here in the north of England, that's over here in Wales, that's also here in central England, is the exact same rock. And it's all the same age. Right. And though that may look kind of obvious looking back, at the time, that was pretty revolutionary, right? Uh, it was, because as you can imagine, not only was this sort of a, a sort of new idea, but it also went against religion. And so there was a lot of, you know, discussion over what his suppositions about the rocks meant in regards to the church. I mean, the Anglican church, obviously, but... Right, I mean, scientists and religion have always had... Uh, kind of rocky relations. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yes, rocky relations. It's so true. And um, this sort of becomes one of the foundations of modern geology is that you can use these different fossils and look at where they are in the layers and m make a definite statement about when they lived. And so that goes back to how old the earth is, which is, always comes into um, abutments with some religious beliefs. But... That got William Smith and many people and his contemporaries into a lot of trouble. Right. And then so after he 
got maybe a little bit convinced that he knew what was going on on the surface, he decided it was time to go underground, right? Right, exactly. So, you know, a canal is just this scar on the earth, but he wanted to further test his ideas and he wanted to take this all over England. And so what he started to do was go down coal mines and coal seams, big black um, layers of rock that are very identifiable, could be easily traced. And they also have fossils in them, right? Because do you remember from intro geology where coal comes from, John? (laughs) I do, if I remember something about uh, kind of marshy lands and peat getting compressed. Does that sound about right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's it. So you're going to get all kinds of woody fossils and plant fossils in this coal. And so William Smith would identify the fossils in these certain coal seams, trace them out over the countryside. He spent a whole lot of time in coal mines, active ones, inactive ones, um, making his map. And this sort of became his life work was he said, I'm going to make this geologic map of these surface deposits all over England and Wales. Wow, so that's that's a pretty big area to map, especially for the, the first <laughs> geologic map. <laughs> right, exactly. And um, William Smith led a really interesting life, which you know we won't get into here. You should definitely read the book to ta- talk about this. But it took him a long time, obviously. <laughs> um, right to travel all over southern England. He went a little bit into Scotland, but he traced the geology of England into Wales, which hadn't been done yet. So that was a big deal. Wales is on the western side of England, and it's, you know, separated from England by water. So no one had really thought to put the two together. But he traced the geology across to the island of Wales, and so that was sort of one of the first times that was proven that, you know, this geology could possibly even be worldwide, not just these localized rocks, but some of these things could be all over the world. And it kind of started to get the whole ball of modern geology rolling now with um, stratigraphy and correlating rock units across very large areas. Right. And so he got an award for this later in life, right, after he had uh, kind of started completing this mapping work. That's right. So all this awful stuff happened to William Smith in his life. He wound up in debtor's prison. Um, The Geological Society of London, because he wasn't noble-born, never really um, appreciated what he was doing. And William Smith was highly plagiarized, which, I mean, is kind of a compliment to his intelligence, but it didn't help him out any. And so he went bankrupt, went into debtor's prison. But much later, uh, the society finally you know, realized what he had done for geology. And this was luckily uh, before he died. And he was awarded the Wollaston Medal um, by the Geological Society of London. And he was very renowned for his map that changed the world. I mean, so much so, he's now known as the father of English geology. Um, You know, there's a bust of him in Oxford and in many other places around England. Wow, that's quite an accomplishment for a scientist to be awarded in the time they lived. Uh, yes, and, especially at this time period, <laughs> and to be such a widely recognized public figure. Right, exactly. I mean, it's not to say that his life was made easier for it, but it was certainly nice that he was able to, he was awarded a pension by the um, by England, and so he no longer had to work. He got out of debtor's prison, and they basically paid for him for the rest of his life, sort of as an apology, and as an acknowledgement of his scientific contribution, which was huge. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's... That's a pretty incredible story, and I'm going to get that book and read it now. 
so we can uh, discuss it at greater length off air. <laughs> exactly. So The Map That Changed the World by Simon Winchester. I think every geoscientist should read this book. It's a really fast read because he's such an excellent author, and it's a great story. And plus, the uh, jacket of the book is a reprint of William Smith's map, oh, that's and cool. it's just beautiful. Like, it's still, it looks better than what we could do today. Right. There's a lot of art in map making. And exactly. that technology's changed a lot. And so this kind of gets me thinking, you know, we've been making maps uh, since the late 1700s is what this means. So we've really right. mapped quite a bit. So do we need to do much more? <laughs> well, yeah, because I wouldn't have a job if I wasn't teaching, <laughs> if I, yeah, didn't have to teach um, students how to map. Um, so, I mean, the answer is yes and no, right? Like, there's a lot of humans, 90% of scientists that are alive are alive today. <laughs> right. But as you said, you know, there's still a lot of refining to be done. Um, and I think this is where technology can really come to the rescue because the easy places have all been mapped, right? <laughs> right. And so now there's a lot of new places or harder places that have just sort of been cursorily mapped by air photos, but there's never been a geologist boots on the ground. And so drones can help you do these sort of things um, and help to refine the maps that we do have. Oh, right. And there's so much new technology coming online with like the Dove satellite constellation that wants to image the entire Earth every 24 hours. Uh, <laughs> And Which is scary some, and awesome. <laughs> right. Some crazy things that we can get away from a lot of these old, you know, uh, a person in a Cessna 182 <laughs> flying along and maybe it was cloudy, maybe it wasn't, that kind of thing. <laughs> so that's one of my favorite things about air photos. Um, and if anyone is familiar with these, you'll see them on Google Earth too. Those little bitty popcorn cumulus clouds that you see. Um that just sort of dot the landscape. If you're up in your Cessna and you're above that cloud layer, you're not doing very good um, taking pictures of the ground geology. But what uh, people that analyze air photos, they call them sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and so the, just a little factoid of the day. <laughs> there are algorithms that try to use multiple photos and remove the sheep, uh, but you end up getting striping and all kinds of artifacts. So you're saying the results are bad? <laughs> Oh, my. Yeah, so I think we should really kind of start wrapping up here because we don't want to run too long. We're trying to keep shows a little bit shorter for you guys. Yeah, even though everyone should love this. But um, so one last thing I want to mention, and this is you should be proud of me because this is on the technology side. Um, the USGS has this program called MapView, and it is a GIS-based um, sort of interactive database. And we'll put the web address up on the show notes. So you should absolutely go to this. And it has not only just geologic maps, but any geologic map, topo maps of everywhere in the U.S. So it's totally interactive. You can zoom into any area. It'll give you a list of all the maps that are available. It is an invaluable and amazing resource. Right. That's, it's a really incredible place. And I think at some point we should talk about uh, different mapping technologies and ways to view all of these shape files and different things that you can get. Uh, but that right. is at least one show in itself. Oh, it's probably four or five. Let's not kid ourselves. <laughs> right. So uh, I think it's about time for everybody's favorite segment. And I don't know if Shannon has her cowbell or not. <laughs> I don't, but I'm going to improvise. So go ahead. <laughs> All right. It's time for Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> 
<laughs> um, so what did, what did we read this week, John? Well, we read a paper that I know you'll like. <laughs> because you say this to me all the time. All the time. And it's a quote from Box in 1980. It says, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And that's the title of the paper that we're going to talk about. Oh, man, I love it so much. If all you do is glance at the bolded titles in this paper, you will be so much smarter for it. Um, Absolutely have a look at this because we as scientists, this is kind of, I mean, it's a fun paper, but it's kind of important, right? Right, it definitely is. And... It's a very recent paper. It just came out in Seismological Research Letters uh, not very long ago. And (laughs) the author expressed some frustration. And one of the colleagues of this person said that they were going to start keeping a tally of how many times they had said this phrase recently. So they said, in this article, I'm going to explain the three main reasons I say this, and that will make me shut up. (laughs) Which I highly doubt that that made them shut up but that's okay because this is really important and the first thing he says and i love this so much we shouldn't be too sanctimonious about our new model no <laughs> and i mean it points out when you're applying for research funds to build a new model what do you do you take all of the current models and you show every single hole that you can possibly think of <laughs> And you say that you're going to plug some of those. And the author even says that this is kind of scientifically fun and stimulating, uh, but maybe not necessarily the best thing to do. (laughs) Right, exactly. Because, you know, you don't know what other holes you're going to open up with your own new model. And so it's probably best to keep a little hubristic approach and not be too, just like he says, too sanctimonious that... Yours is the answer. Right. And he says that, you know, hopefully when you say this, it shows a degree of humility, especially after casting these, <laughs> casting aspirations on previous models. <laughs> and it is kind of a, uh, a disclosure as well to say right. that we don't really know what's going on on the earth and we will never be able to perfectly model it. <laughs> oh, so depressing and yet exciting because there are so many more things to be answered. Um, so the next thing he says is we shouldn't let perfection be the enemy of a more useful model. Right. And this is true in everything from paper writing to figure making to making models. Uh, this is true for like me getting dressed in the morning too. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love this sentence. Like this is just such an excellent sentiment, I think. Right. And though this particular paper is mostly talking about earthquake models and earthquake uh, magnitude forecasts, it's really applicable to pretty much every branch of geoscience or science in general, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have models for absolutely everything because the earth is complex and we have to make it more simplified. Hence, all the models that we make up for geologic processes, for geophysical processes, for weather prediction (laughs) especially weather prediction (laughs) yes um especially weather not prediction but that's another that's a whole nother thing to talk about um so don't think yours is the end-all be-all right right and kind of one of the last things that is pointed out in this paper i thought was really fascinating because he says not only are all models wrong but their relative usefulness varies depending on the location and the specific loss metric of interest. 
That's a quote <laughs> from the paper. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I just zeroed in on that as well. And it's so true, right? Like, you can have this model, and it might be really great over here, but one meter away, it totally breaks down, right? Right. So that, and also, this is kind of what I always envision uh, folks in economics or business. Yes, you can send me your hate mail. Uh, <laughs> doing... If you choose different aerometrics, different ways to say how well your model performed, you're going to get a different answer. Oh, it's absolutely true. I mean, any null cases, you know, hard to prove, easy to prove, you can make it say whatever you want to. Right. So this is definitely worth reading. Uh, Yeah, this was a total pleasure to read. Even if you're not into seismology, it's super easy. And like John just said, it really has implications for any geoscience at all. It's not just talking about computer models, but any sort of facies model or anything you can come up with at all. This is a good good rubric to sort of test yourself with, I feel like. Right. So that's Fun Paper Friday. Be sure to let us know what you're reading by going on Twitter or Facebook and using the hashtag Fun Paper Friday. We would love to see what you come up with. And Shannon, tell them how they can get a hold of us if they want to send us a comment. All right, so you can email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can always find us on the web at don'tpanicgeocast.com and on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. Right, I'm online at johnrleeman.com and I'm on Twitter at geo underscore Lehman. Shannon is at Shannon Doolin. And remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.